Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. We're at a major transition point in the book of Ephesians, and the word that marks that transition is in verse 1. It's the word, therefore. That's an important word for us to understand in Scripture because it's a word that links what is coming with what went before. It tells us that what has been said is the reason for what will be said, and what will be said is the consequence of what has been said. And what Paul has been saying for three chapters is doctrine. What he's going to say for the next three chapters is our duty. What he's described in the first three chapters is our position. What he's going to describe in the last three chapters is our practice. And so it's doctrine, therefore duty. Now you can't completely make that division because there are places in the last three chapters where Paul introduces further doctrine. In fact, right here in chapter 4 and verse 4 he says, There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. That's teaching. That's doctrine again. But... Primarily, the last three chapters are filled with exhortations and they're based upon the truths that Paul has established in the first half of the book. And that is always Paul's pattern in his writing. Classic example is the book of Romans. He spends 11 chapters teaching us our position, teaching us doctrine. And then in chapter 12 of Romans, he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he spends the rest of the book of Romans defining how we are to live as a living sacrifice in this world. In Colossians chapter 3, the first four verses describe positional doctrine. We have died with Christ. We have risen with Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ. And then in verse 5, he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body to be dead to sin. And we see that same pattern here in the book of Ephesians. In the first three chapters, he tells me who I am in Christ. In the last three chapters, he tells me how to become who I am in Christ. In the first three chapters, he tells me I am in Christ, seated in the heavenlies. In the last three chapters, he tells me how Christ is in me, walking on the earth. Chapters 1 to 3 is mind-stretching theology. takes me back to the mind of God before creation. He lifts me up to the heavenlies. The last three chapters is down-to-earth, concrete implications in everyday living. Chapters 1 to 3, the primary word is knowing. He tells me we're to know God, know the riches of His glory, know the surpassing greatness of His power, know His love which surpasses knowledge. The word that comes out in the last three chapters is being. We're to be kind. We're to be angry and yet not sin. We're to be imitators of God. And so doctrine is the key to practical Christian living. And doctrine, therefore, duty is the formula for a balanced Christian life. Now, not everyone adheres to that formula. Some people prefer what I call the hunt and peck approach. Rather than read scripture, we go through and we find the highlighted verses. We find the verses we have underlined in the past and we just read and reread those same verses. Or we have a daily calendar that gives us the verse of the day. Kind of like our spiritual vitamin. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that cannot be my total diet. Scripture is not arranged like the hymn book. I can't just go through and pick out a few favorites there. And this word, therefore, reminds us of that because it tells us that there is a context to the Word of God. I understand the doctrine, therefore... 
He appeals to me to do certain things in my life. And I have to read it all and I have to understand it in its context for it to make sense. A second pattern that some people follow is the application-only approach. Some people say, well, doctrine is so heavy and I can't really understand theology, so just tell me what to do. And some teachers accommodate that. All they do is give you exhortation. All they do is give you application. And that can be very entertaining at times, but it's not a complete diet either. It's like the basketball coach who gives a great pep talk, but never teaches his players how to play the game. There's a problem with that. If somebody doesn't teach you the truths of doctrine, just tells you what to do, it's not going to go very far. There's two major problems with that approach, and one is that it produces only short-term results because the pep talk is only going to last so long. It's only going to encourage you for so long, and then you're going to fail. And the second problem is that that produces legalism because if all I'm doing is telling you the do's and the don'ts and I'm not giving you the reason why, then that's legalism. That's doing things that you don't understand and you don't have the foundation on which to operate. And so, when we come to Scripture, we have to have doctrine, therefore duty. Sometimes in my teaching, I know that I get a little bit deep. I can tell because some of your eyelids roll. But I'm not going to back away from that because we have to understand the truth of God's Word in order to have the duty and the practice and the principles and the action make sense. Let me illustrate that. Look over just a few books, a couple books, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28. If you've never marked this verse, I want you to mark it. Not so you can hunt and peck, but so that you'll notice it. Chapter 1, verse 28. Paul says, And we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now, there is the formula for presenting men complete in Christ. And what is it? Teaching and admonishing. Teaching doctrine and admonishing your duty. Those two ingredients have to be there. And that's what we see Paul doing over and over again in his teaching and once again here in the book of Ephesians. The third pattern that I see people... uh, practice sometimes is the doctrine-only approach. Some people go through Scripture and they just want to major in doctrine. They just want to say, give me the meat. Man, I'll get in there and dig in the meat. And then when it comes to the practical part of Scripture, they kind of say, well, I'm kind of above that. I'm, I'm kind of beyond that. I just want to study doctrine. And so they would study the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, and then they would move on to some other book where they could find some further doctrine. But see, if doctrine does not flow into duty, it only becomes knowledge. And Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 8.1 that knowledge puffs up. If doctrine doesn't result in practical application, then it only results in arrogance in my life. And so when Paul gets finished with the first three chapters of doctrine, he says, Therefore... Come on, stay with me. Now we're going to go into the practical part. Now we're going to apply this to our lives. Understanding doctrine is essential to spiritual growth. But understanding doctrine alone does not automatically result in a changed life. 
See, the fact that you know that Christ is in you and you are in Christ and His resurrection power is in you does not eliminate your responsibility to obey and to act and to follow. The fact that I understand what God has done and what He is doing in my life doesn't mean I sit down on the couch and say, All right, God, you do it. Because otherwise, Paul would have ended this letter at the end of chapter 3. But he doesn't. And in chapters 4 to 6, he gives us a road map for the Christian life. He tells us things we are to do and actions we are to take. For instance, look down at verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, I want you to walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Verse 22, I want you to lay aside your old self. Verse 24, I want you to put on the new self. Verse 25, I want you to lay aside falsehood and speak truth. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Verse 28, let him who steals, steal no more, but rather let him labor and share. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away. Verse 32, be kind to one another. Chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God. Verse 2, walk in love. All these exhortations are the roadmap we are to carry out in our lives. And then I think there's a fourth approach, and that is the one I call the take the riches and run approach that some people have. Some people like to talk about all the riches that we have in Christ, but they shy away from it when we start talking about our responsibilities. We want to talk about the riches in chapters 1 to 3. We really don't want to get into the responsibility we have in chapters 4 to 6. We're kind of like Peter when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he saw the Lord glorified and Moses was there and Elijah was there. And he got a taste of the kingdom. And you remember what Peter said to Jesus? He said, let us build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now what was he saying? Let's stay here on the mountain. This is great. We'll build a permanent home for you here and we'll just stay here and we'll enjoy the kingdom up here on the mountaintop and we'll never have to go back to the valley. And what did Jesus do? It says Jesus led them right back down into the valley and the first person that confronted them was a demon-possessed little boy who needed Jesus. And what was the message? The message is that the riches that are ours in Christ are not simply to be enjoyed on the mountaintop. They're to be lived out in the valley. They are not to be hoarded. They are to be spent and they are to be shared. And that's where a lot of Christians struggle. We like the riches, but we don't always like the responsibilities. We're kind of like the parents of the blind man Jesus healed in John chapter 9. He had been blind all his life and Jesus healed him. Can you imagine how his parents felt? They had to be saying inside, yes! He can see. But it tells us that the Jewish leaders came up to his parents and said, how did this happen? Who did this? And they said, in my paraphrase, beats us. Why did they do that? It tells us in John chapter 9 they did that because they feared the Jews. You see, they wanted the blessings. They didn't want the obligations. But as we come to Ephesians, we find that that is never God's pattern. And that is not Paul's pattern. Having listed our riches in Ephesians 1 to 3, Paul now says, therefore, here's your responsibility. And I want you to notice the tone in which he does that in verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 
I entreat you. Your Bible may say, I beseech you. That word means I beg you. Now that sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it? Wouldn't you expect the Apostle to Paul to say, I command you, I order you to get into line and get busy. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because these are the words of grace. Law says, if you obey me, I'll bless you. Grace says, I have already abundantly blessed you. Now please, obey me. Paul taught us our position in Christ and all the riches that we have. Then he prayed that we would understand it. And now we find him begging us that we will walk worthy of that calling. The word entreat is an interesting word. It's a word that means literally to plead with someone to come alongside. And I like that because Paul is not asking us to do something he isn't already doing. He's saying, I want you to come alongside me and walk this worthy walk. And so Paul says, join me. Where has this walk gotten Paul? You see the phrase? I, the prisoner of the Lord. He's in prison. He's saying, join me. Walk the worthy walk. What's that tell us? It may cost you something in this world to walk worthy of your calling. But the significance of it is not measured by the world. It's measured by the Lord. You know, one of my favorite little phrases in Scripture is buried in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 38. And there it describes all kinds of people who suffered in their faithfulness to God. It talks about people who were scourged and people who had their heads cut off and, 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 and people who were abused for their faith. And then it has a little parenthetical statement there, and it says, people or men of whom the world was not worthy. I love that phrase. The world thought they weren't worthy to be in the world. God says the world wasn't worthy to have them. Why? Because they were walking worthy of their calling in Jesus Christ. Notice the word in verse 1, walk. Paul could have picked a lot of other terms. He could have used the term float, drift, hop, creep. But he says walk. Why? Because walk gives us the idea of steady, sustained motion. Step by step by step. That's what the Christian life is. It's a steady thing. Now, a lot of us don't like to do that. We don't like to walk. We prefer to float. Just kind of float along with whatever's happening or drift along with, with the apathy of our day. Some of us like to sprint in our Christian life. We, we race out there and then we get exhausted and we find you on the side of the road collapsed. Some of us like to hop in our Christian experience. We hop from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience. We say, I know I'm in a valley right now, but don't we have a revival coming up? I, I can maybe, uh, maybe I'm going to camp this summer. I'll catch up. I'll just jump from mountaintop. But see, Paul says, we're to walk. That's a daily, consistent, step-by-step, moment-by-moment relationship with the Lord. And that's one of the key words in the book of Ephesians. It's used eight times. And here Paul says we're to walk worthy of our calling. That word worthy is from a, a root word that means balancing the scales. And that day they had a scale that they would put a weight that they knew on one side and then they would put whatever they were weighing on the other side until they balanced out. And that's the word he's using here. He's saying, 
What's on one side should equal what's on the other side. What's on one side is your calling in Jesus Christ. And he's saying your walk ought to weigh what your calling is. Now, what is our calling? Well, that's a word Paul uses sometimes to describe an individual's calling into ministry. He talks about himself being called as an apostle. But here he uses it in a broader sense. He uses it the way he does down in chapter 4 and verse 4 at the end where he says, you were called in one hope of your calling. And our, our calling is really what Paul has described in the first three chapters. He says that when we were sons of disobedience and children of wrath, dead in our sins, separated from Christ, without God, without hope, God called us out of all that. And God blessed us with all spiritual blessings. He made us His sons. He made us alive. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with Christ in heavenly places. He made us God's masterpiece. He made us citizens in His kingdom, members in His family. He made us the temple in which God dwells. He gave us the privilege of sharing the unfathomable riches with lost men and women. He gave us the privilege of demonstrating the wisdom of God to the angels. And He gave us His power at work in our lives, His power which can do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That's our calling. What a calling that we have. And Paul says, understanding your calling, which is really your position in Jesus Christ, I want you to walk worthy of that. Now, What does it mean to walk worthy? You may be sitting here this morning, you're saying, well, if I've been called to such a high position in Jesus Christ, I guess the worthy walk means I'm supposed to stick out my chest and just kind of strut around this world. No. Because notice what the first characteristic of this walk is in verse 2. He says we're to walk with all humility. Our high calling demands a lowly walk. And that's characteristic throughout Scripture. In fact, most of us are familiar with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. After Paul says that there, you know what he says in verse 3 immediately afterwards? This is the first thing he says. He says, I don't want you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to. As soon as we're blessed by God, one of our tendencies is to kind of think we, we did it or we are somebody, and he warns us against pride. And here in Ephesians, he says we're to walk worthy, first characteristic, with all humility. Notice the word all. Not halfway humility, not in some areas of your life. Paul is calling you to total humility in every area. Now, what is humility? Well, the simplest way to define it would be the absence of pride. And what is pride? Pride is thinking more highly of myself than I ought to. Now, we all struggle with pride. We struggle with pride in our abilities. We find ourselves saying, I can do that. Or I can do that better than he does. We struggle with pride in our abilities. We struggle with pride in what we've done in the past. I find that the further I get away from events, the better I look. The more I talk about an event, the better I look. Because pride comes in there. We get pride when we talk about the future. I'm going to do something. And we brag about it. We get pride in our possessions, what we have, what God has blessed us with. We find ourselves taking pride in that. 
We even have positional pride. I talked to somebody this week who said uh, they didn't get a raise last this year, but they got a new title. And I thought, well, what is that? You know, that means I get to get to tell people I'm uh, now executive uh, assistant manager. But see, that's pride. That's feeding pride. We take pride in our intelligence. I knew that. And one of the most dangerous forms of pride of all is spiritual pride. And Jesus warned us about that in Matthew chapter 6. He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Even when we serve the Lord, we find ourselves sometimes looking around to see if anybody noticed. Right? Because pride seeps into even our spiritual activities. Now, how do we eliminate pride? How do we walk in humility? Well, let me show you a verse that really pinpoints that. Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. David is the writer. And he says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers... The moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? The way to develop humility in your life is to begin to see God for who he is. Because pride, when you think about it, is just me competing with God, isn't it? When I'm proud, I'm competing with God. What I need to do is get into His presence, see who He is, and in His presence I will say with David, what is man? We need a fresh glimpse of God to produce humility in our lives. That's why James said in James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. That's where it happens. When I really see Him for who He is, humility is going to follow. Now, there's two ways to accomplish that. One is the easy way. And that is when we willingly do like James said, we humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. The other is the hard way. Because sometimes the Lord has to humble us. I think the classic example of that is Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. It says there that Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon, went out on his uh, rooftop and began to look over his kingdom. And he said this, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? That's pride. I built it, and it's all for my glory. And it says, immediately the Lord struck him. And for seven years he wandered in the fields on his hands and knees and ate grass like an animal. His hair grew like eagle's feathers, and his his nails grew like bird's claws. And after seven years, the Lord brought him back to his senses. And this is what he says in his testimony at the end of that chapter. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. God is able to humble us when we walk in pride. It's a lot easier if we simply bow the knee and come into his presence realizing who he is and saying, what am I in the presence of God? That's humility. No more competition. God, you're on the throne. 
Second characteristic, and the one we'll close with this morning. Second characteristic of the worthy walk in verse 2 is gentleness, or your Bible may say meekness. That's the real word used here. Now, today, meekness is not really an attribute that the world uh, is seeking. In fact, most people equate meekness with weakness. Uh, The second dictionary definition says one who is easily imposed on, one who is too submissive, spineless, and spiritless. That's not really the idea behind this word in the Greek. It has nothing to do with cowardice or weakness. In fact, it's a word that was used of wild animals who were trained, especially the use of, of horses who were broken and trained. Such an animal has his strength and spirit, just as he did before, but his will is now under the control of his master. You see, a lion that is tamed is just as strong as a wild lion. The only difference is that he is now under the control of his trainer. And a horse that is broken and trained can run just as fast as he could before. But now he runs when and where his master commands him to. And so meekness is power under control. But it has a second idea to it because the root word also has the idea of soothing. And it was a word used of of the way an ointment took the sting out of a burn. And so a meek person is a gentle, tender, non-abrasive person. Someone who's willing to suffer injury rather than inflict it. It's the word Paul used in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 of a nursing mother handling her child. That kind of tenderness. That kind of meekness. And meekness is an essential quality in your life. Because it affects your spiritual life. James 1, 21 says, In meekness, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Meekness is that teachable attitude that receives the Word of God. It's that heart that is plowed and fertile and able to receive the seed of God's Word. That's what meekness is. It's responding. Uh, I'm humble when I realize who God is. I'm meek when I am totally submissive to Him. And I say, Lord, you're in control. You take charge. Second thing it affects is it affects the lives of unbelievers. Because in 2 Timothy 2.25 we read, With meekness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. When I deal with people who are opposed to the truth of God's word, the quality I need is meekness. See, an abrasive person may win the argument. A meek person wins the man. And I would hate to think that my personality drove someone from the kingdom of God. Meekness is that attractive quality that even when someone is opposed to me, they're attracted to that in my life. And then the third area it affects is that it affects believers who have stumbled because in Galatians chapter 1, or chapter 6 and verse 1, we're told that when we go to a brother who has stumbled in sin, we're to restore him in a spirit of meekness. And so meekness affects my own spiritual life, the lives of unbelievers, and the lives of my brothers and sisters around me. I want to be meek. I hope you do too. I want to be gentle, soothing, tender, non-abrasive, 
If people are going to stumble, I want them to stumble over the cross of Jesus Christ and not over me. Now, meekness may not be high on the world's chart of desirable attributes, but it is on God's. Galatians 5.23 tells us it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, meekness. Matthew 5.5, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And in 1 Peter 3.4, we're told that it's an inner quality that is precious in the sight of God. God looks around and the thing that He finds to be precious to Him is meekness in our lives. Now we're going to stop there for this morning. But let me close by saying this. There's only one time in Scripture that I can find where Jesus describes His own heart. And He does that in Matthew eleven twenty nine, And these are the words that He uses. He says, I am meek and humble in heart. Which tells me that the first two characteristics of the worthy walk are really the characteristics of Jesus' heart. John put it this way in 1 John 2, 6. He says, The one who says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. That's what Paul's telling us here. We're in Christ. Christ is in us. We ought to walk worthy of that calling. And the worthy walk is to walk in such a way that the heart of Christ is manifest in our lives. And that heart is expressed in humility and meekness.